Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. With us once again is Adam White, who writes about all things judicial for the Weekly Standard, among others. He's also with Boyd and Gray and Associates. And Adam, last time we talked, it was a series of 9 nothing blowouts. Now it looks like the usual partisan folks are down in the 5-4 trenches again. That's what it seems like, Michael. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to have you, and let's focus on the big case everyone's talking about, which is the Hobby Lobby case. The two, to me, the, the premier questions are, how big a win is this for religious liberty, and how big a defeat, if any, is it for either Obamacare or its legal underpinnings? Well, I think it's a very big win for religious liberty. Now, that's not to say that this case is going to unleash a tidal wave of similar claims against other federal mandates. The court went out of its way to stress that this case is very much bound up in the facts and the law at issue. Uh, that said, it's really something for the court to step forward and vindicate religious liberty uh, in this case, um, to push back against the administration's very uh, heavy burdens they're placing upon a handful of, of businesses. And hopefully the administration will take this lesson to heart. We'll see, though. Well, when you say uh, the burdens, I mean, that seemed to me to be the sense that the court by 5-4 margin came to the conclusion that there were other ways to solve the problem other than burdening the, you know, the religious owners of Hobby Lobby and the other businesses, and therefore they had an escape clause. Would this have been different if the uh, you know, way of solving the problem had been you know, more difficult? Well, I think, I think you've basically got it right. What the administration was trying to do here under the Affordable Care Act was create a giant entitlement program for contraception and, and abortifacient contraceptives. Um, but rather than actually pay for that, paying for that program itself, the government decided to just push the entire cost on to employers, including uh, employers with deeply held religious qualms with, uh, with these type of abortifacients. Now, what this ran afoul of was another statute, the 1993 Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which was Congress's reaction to a pretty controversial religious freedom uh, case at the time, ironically written by Justice Scalia, called Employment Division versus Smith, where the court really pushed back on religious liberty claims. Congress created the Religious Freedom Restoration Act precisely in order to, to restore uh, religious liberty. And so... When the administration pushed forward with the HHS program, they ran right into what's called RIFRA, the act. Uh, now, fortunately, RIFRA applies across the board, so it's not specific to the Affordable Care Act, but it applies its, uh, its restrictions in very fact-specific ways. Did any of the justices note the irony of the same administration that has chunked entire mandates overboard without hesitation, including not even letting the original employer mandate take effect, insisting that this small mandate that affects a relatively small number of businesses was sacrosanct and ascent, you know, at the essence of Obamacare working. Well, that really is sort of looming over the case uh, throughout the majority's analysis, because part of what RIFRA, the, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, asks is, are these burdens that are placed on religious, uh, religious liberty, are they the least restrictive means by which Congress can achieve what it wants to do? And the court points out there are already opt-outs or accommodations for, for nonprofit corporations, for so-called grandfathered plans. Um, there are plenty of carve-outs and exemptions, and the court points out that if with those already on the books, it strains credulity to suggest that this that imposing this specific mandate on this specific uh, type of plaintiff, namely religiously faithful uh, 
owners of closely held corporations, that this particular mandate is just indispensable. And that's the argument that the court rejected. How indispensable to the court's argument is the closely held corporation? Why would these religious uh, liberties, these rights, extend only to closely held and not to, say, mega corporations or, on the other end, to, you know, Bill at Bill's TV shop? Well, the court didn't – I'd have to go back and look, but I'm pretty sure the court didn't draw a a total bright line carving out bigger corporations. Their analysis was basically this. Obviously, under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, an individual has religious liberty. And obviously, a sole proprietor of a company, you know, Bill's Bait Shop or or what have you, that that company would have religious freedom. It gets a little bit more – difficult when you move on to a corporation, which is by its nature a little bit more separate from the owners. Now, the administration and the administration supporters kept trying to compare, uh, kept trying to draw this argument out to, to the largest corporations, big mega corporations, saying, well, how could these sorts of corporations have religious liberty? But the court didn't need to go that far in this case, because we're dealing with what are called closely held corporations, corporations where the ownership is tied up completely in one owner or a small handful of of owners, in this case, family members. And what they said here is, in this case, it's not hard to track the religious beliefs of this small cluster of owners to the corporations themselves. And the corporations, their own founding documents, uh, included statements of, of religious belief and religious purpose. So the fact that this was a closely held, these were two closely held corporations, made it an easier case. Now, if uh, say, a large corporation like Microsoft tried to bring a Religious Freedom Restoration Act claim against some mandate. That would present a very different case, and the justices would have to grapple with uh, with those arguments separately. Uh, what, those of us who don't like lawyers, nothing personal, Adam, are always delighted when you get stuck with lots of homework. And man, what was it, five different written opinions in this case? Is that right? Well, there was... I think by my count, there were four opinions, okay. and the last of those opinions, a, a dissent, is just a paragraph long on a procedural, a little procedural point. The main opinions were Justice Alito for the five-justice majority, the four conservatives, and Ken, Kennedy. Uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, unsurprisingly, wrote the lead dissent opinion for the four uh, liberals. And then the opinion in the middle was a concurrence, a very short, uh, very short but interesting concurrence by Justice Kennedy, speaking only for himself. Why was that interesting? Well, Kennedy's opinion, and I had written about Kennedy's questions at oral argument. I had written about it for the Weekly Standard, where he really seemed to bristle at the amount of discretion that was being vested or claimed by uh, the administration to just pick and choose who would be exempt from uh, the requirements and who would not be. But in his concurrence, he, he obviously stands by the majority opinion, but he casts it in terms of dignity. It's a word that pops up a couple of times in his opinion, he says, you know, free exercise is important, but it's not just freedom of belief. It means, quote, the right to express those beliefs and to establish one's religious or non-religious def- self-definition in the political, civic, and economic life of our larger community. Now, that's a little bit of sort of philosophical mumbo-jumbo that Kennedy is a little famous for. But what's interesting is how he recognizes that what's happening here isn't just the administration imposing burdens on the religiously faithful. It really was a case of the administration singling out uh, religious people and religious businesses for disfavored treatment amongst everybody else who was getting waivers. These people were being singled out. Now, this is a line of rhetoric that Kennedy, you see most famously in Kennedy's opinions on same-sex, uh, same-sex relations, 
um, the old the old case in Colorado, and then much more recently the Lawrence v. Texas case about a decade ago, and now the same-sex marriage cases. And legal scholars, law professors, have really picked up on this theme of Kennedy's concern for dignity and for government programs to go out of their way to demean individuals. Uh, the, the most famous con law book out there right now, a new one by a, a Yale law professor named Bruce Ackerman, really makes this point. But the thing is, as the law professors have been making these arguments and recognizing this thread in Kennedy's opinion, they sort of forgot that liberally favored rights like same-sex marriage aren't the only ones that have dignity at stake. And I think Kennedy really recoiled from the way that the dignity of these religious people is being demeaned by this administration. And it'll be interesting to see uh, what follows from this in future cases. And that's what we want to wrap up with is, is this ruling today, five justices, a stepping stone to a widening door on either religious liberties or the rights of people when they come together to do business, to bring their you know, constitutional rights along with them? Or is this just... Here's the case. Here's a let's face it, a kind of out of the blue law. After all, uh, we'd had uh, decades of businesses offering health care without offering uh, birth control or abortifacients before, and they always worked things out either with you know giving the employees a chance to buy their own coverage or whatever. So is this just really a case of a particularly overreaching White House and a particularly easy case to call when it comes to closely held uh, corporations like Hobby Lobby? No, Michael, I wouldn't say that the door is widening. What I'd say is this case stopped the door from slamming shut. I think it was an important statement by the court that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, it has meaning, it has substance, it's something that the administration and future administrations can't simply brush aside by pounding the table and saying, this program is really important. Uh, but that's not to say that it's going to become a, a, widespread, a tool of widespread litigation. I think they made an important statement and a powerful one, but it may well be a limited one, and we'll see in the future. Okay, I lied. I'm going to ask you one more question. Sure. Because the case that springs to my mind is a case of, uh, and this just happened out in the West, of a florist who was approached about doing flowers for a same-sex wedding. And the florist had no objection to selling flowers. They objected to being involved in the ceremony, going, showing up, decor, you know, the whole, you know, participating, they felt, in a religious ceremony that, vi or in a ceremony that violated their religious faith. Would that florist, would the wedding photographer, would this provide them the opportunity to say, I should be able to conduct my business this way without being punished by local state laws? Or are, are those two, am I reaching way beyond, based on the rulings you've read today, where the justices would be? Well, Michael, you're not alone in thinking about this, because Justice Ginsburg's dissent raised this very issue. When she talked about the few, this possible tidal wave, of, uh, of faux religious liberty claims. Um, her first example was from the 60s, a case in which um, a private business claimed a First Amendment religious right to discriminate on the basis of race. The second example, I think, was from the 80s, and I think it was more of a, it might have been a, uh, a gender discrimination case or maybe discrimination against a single woman. Um, but then the third example she used, I can't recall if it was the case you just mentioned or a similar one. It was a case involving the collision of same-sex marriage and religious liberty. Now, by my reading, my first look at it, I don't think the majority or Justice Kennedy's opinions grappled directly with this issue. I suspect that the majority probably did not want to step into this quagmire because they didn't need to decide it for this case, but it's obviously a fight on the horizon. But the thing is, I can't give you a very good answer on whether this case solves those cases. It really doesn't, because at the end of the day, 
this case seemed like an easy one for the majority because the religious the burden on the religious liberty was so obvious uh namely forcing people to be compliant with contraceptive with uh with abortifacient contraceptives or levying millions of dollars of fees on them so the burden was heavy and there was obviously a less restrictive alternative, namely giving these people the opt-outs that other people were getting. And what but I find interesting for- is your use of the word dignity, because on the one hand, you can see some you know, bigoted moron trying to use faith as a smokescreen. On the other hand, you can see how it would violate the dignity of some you know, nice little old lady who bakes cakes, who has no desire to engage in any debate over any issue, but just isn't comfortable being asked to show up at a same-sex ceremony and present a wedding cake. And you say, so if the word is dignity, that to me is a very interesting line that uh, Justice Kennedy has drawn. It, it really is. And the interesting thing, and what's going to be difficult in those cases, is you're going to see calls uh, or defense of dignity on both sides of the equation, the private business owner and the couple that wants to get married. And it's very hard to see from here how Justice Kennedy is going to settle that uh, dispute. Well, I have to say that anybody who's so militant that they insist that some... <laughs> guy who runs a florist come down and do his wedding even though you don't want to when you could go to another florist you know five miles away you know they're not thinking a lot about dignity so i but that's that's the uninformed view of a guy who has not gone to law school and that's what we're glad to have you adam white thanks so much for joining us here on the weekly standard podcast